This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? How are you doing? How did you get on over the festive time? Did you survive? If you did, well done. I think we can safely say my festive time was nice and uneventful, which I'm very, very happy about. New year, new books, more to do. Do you know? Oh, well, let me tell you what the books are that I'm featuring today. And then I'm going to tell you something that happened to me today, which is just typical Philippa, I think we could say. Oh, and I have news on something I'm doing as well. You see, lots to say. Anyway, first, the first book I'm reviewing for you is Dead Man's Creek by Chris Hammer. And Chris is very kindly coming on the podcast to talk to us about that book. Then I'm reviewing The Binding Room by Nadine Matheson. Death Comes to Marlowe by Robert Thorogood. Afterwards by Charlotte Leonard. And Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Quite a variety of books for you. So, yes, OK, this morning the forecast was heavy rain and I only had a certain number of hours that I could get the dog walk done. So I just thought, right, it's, it's going to happen. you just got to sort of suit up, boot up and you'll be fine. So <laughs> I put on my yellow cagoule, which isn't the most attractive sight, but let's go with it. I put on my thick walking boot and and then the pièce de résistance were these sort of plastic trousers that I pull up over my jeans, which work brilliantly to stop me, my jeans getting wet. But dig, you know, I look a, I look a sight. I thought, no, come on, no one's going to be out, and you just you're going to be dry. You're going to be laughing. Put the dog in, well, not a similar, actually her outfit was much nicer than mine. She doesn't like it. Anyway, off we went. Can I tell you that not one drop of rain fell? What was going on? Everyone was out having lovely time. The sky turned to blue. People out, not in shorts and T-shirts, but, you know, not, not dressed as I was. And I just felt mortified. And I just kept thinking, how can I... 
can I, shall I just take all these outer clothes off and then walk around carrying them all? But I just thought, no, what if it starts raining again? I'll be glad I've got them on. Of course, it didn't start raining. But anyway, my my news that I must tell you about, and I think it's something that I'm going to follow up with you each week for now, is that your girl is going to be in a pantomime. Yes, uh, nothing incredible. This is a, a lovely local Amdram thing. Lots of fun. But we're doing Cinderella. And this year, your girl is the fairy godmother. So I thought I'd talk you through that journey as we go week by week. To date, I've had the script. We've had one read through before Christmas. And the first rehearsal is on Sunday. And we've already been told to learn our words. And crikey, it's a few years since I was last on the stage. And uh, the old brain cells are not... (laughs) and not going as quick. I've recorded a voice memo of me reading the script. And every time it's my line, I'm surprised by what I have to say. So I think it's I think it's going to be a bit painful, but it's good for the old brain cells. It's good for me to do something like that, and we'll see. But there's bound to be a catalogue of disasters that follow me, so I thought I'd take you along for the journey. So that's all the news we've got, but enough waffling. Let's get started. So um, I've reviewed books by Chris Hammer before. I think he's a brilliant crime writer. His books are based in Australia, and they are so... <laughs> They're so Australian. Who who knew? Who'd have thought that? But, you know, they're just so evocative and they just pull you right in. So let me give you the blurb for this one. Old bones sink, but secrets always rise to the surface. A decades old murder in her hometown should have been a case to file and forget for Detective Nell Buchanan. As more bodies are discovered and she begins to question how well she truly knows those closest to her, Nell realises that finding the truth could prove more difficult and dangerous than she'd ever expected. Can she survive to root out the truth and what price will she have to pay for it? Let's have a look. The last book I reviewed of Chris's was Opal Country, and I really enjoyed that and learned a lot about opals. Who knew? Anyway, here we go. Let's. Oh, there's a map. There's a. Here we are. August. She moves through the night, the forest dark, the trees gathered and whispering support. She passes through them, relying as much on memory as the shielded light from her torch. Her mind is alive, her senses alert. A brief hesitation, then the decision to take a shortcut, leaving the ridge and cutting across a small lagoon, now empty, following a wallaby path. I mean, as I say, these books are superb. Not only is the the sort of the story of the crime grade, it's the setting. It just transports you and paints such a vivid picture. Um, Yeah, really interesting. But enough of my waffle. Let's go and talk to Chris now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to have Chris Hammer on the podcast today. Latest book is Dead Man's Creek. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Philip. It's so good to be with you. It's so good to have you on to talk about this wonderful book. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about it? This is a tricky one, the so-called elevator pitch. (laughs) The book is set in a place called the Barma Millawa Forest. Now, this is a real place in Australia. It's the world's largest river red gum forest, little known about even within Australia. It sits on the border of New South Wales and Victoria on the Murray River. And I'll just set the book up with the 
the prologue. This isn't a spoiler, but we're in this forest, the Barma Millawa Forest. It's the middle of winter and it's midnight. And there are two people in the forest, unaware of each other's presence. There's a woman who's intent on blowing up a regulator. This is a small dam that prevents the river water flowing into the forest and, in her point of view, nourishing the forest. And then not far away, there's there's a, a man, also unnamed, also anonymous, uh, and he's running for his life. He's being hunted. We don't know why they're hunting him. We don't know who he is. The two are unaware of each other's presence, but uh, they can both hear. The woman can hear gunfire, the man can hear explosions, and that's it. Then the book proper, if you like, starts. It's about three months later, and we're with Detective Constable Nell Buchanan and Detective Sergeant Ivan Lukic. These are the two protagonists in Opal Country, um, although Dead Man's Creek can absolutely be read as a standalone. They've been sent down because it seems the woman has succeeded in blowing up this regulator and a work crew that's repairing it uh, find a body. Now, Nell is not too keen to be there. She's recently been promoted to a full-time homicide detective. She's not keen to be there, one, because she thinks the case is a dud. She thinks... Um, this, uh, the body that's been found in the bottom of the regulator pool has been there for decades and decades and decades. So she reckons this is destined to be just filed away in the cold case file. But the other reason she doesn't want to be there is because she grew up in a nearby town. Her family's still there. Her parents are still there. She has a very strange relationship with her parents, particularly with her mother, um, and so she's reluctant to be there. Ivan leaves her there. He thinks it's just a cold case as well. He thinks he's doing her a favour by giving her a bit more time to spend with her family. And then things escalate. More bodies are found. There's the threat of violence. But the um, the real clincher for, for poor Nell is she begins to suspect that members of her own family are implicated in these murders. What a great summary. I mean, my goodness. And as you say, you don't have to read Opal Country first at all. In fact, I think you could read Dead Man's Creek and then go back and read Opal Country and enjoy seeing how the character of Nell is sort of introduced and, uh, and, and all that's involved. Is it nice to return back to Nell and have these characters come back in? Absolutely. My intention, I'd, I'd written three previous crime books featuring a journalist called Martin Scarston, so Scrublands, Silver and Trust. Um, but I thought I'd give Martin and his partner, Mandalay Blonde, a bit of a break. So I had this idea of writing a standalone book, the book that became Opal Country. But the thing is, the more I wrote it, the more the characters of Ivan and particularly Nell got under my skin. And I wanted to to know, as the author, I wanted to know more about them. Nell's a terrific character. She's really feisty. She's young. She stands her ground. She doesn't take rubbish from her superiors. So, And she's physically brave and whatever. On the other hand, she's inexperienced. She is naive. She can get emotional. She can certainly make mistakes and mess up. 
So there's these sort of two sides to her, or more than two sides, I hope. So, yeah, no, she's a, she's a great character. And another major character, it seems to me, is the location of the place. For me, it's as equally important. I learned so much through your books about the location. How, how important is it when you're writing and sort of which comes first, the, the who done it, the why done it, or the location? The location comes very early on, and it's a big feature in all my books even in Trust, which is set in Sydney, so a real location rather than a fictionalised bush location. But this one is a little bit extra because in this book there are three timelines. So the forest is a centre of action in all three timelines, but there's one during the Second World War told through the eyes of an 11-year-old boy called Jimmy. Then there's a 1970s story with a teenage girl called Tessa and then the present day story, which is told through the eyes of Nell Buchanan, the homicide detective. But the forests are very different. The forest in the Second World War is one, a drought ravaged forest, which was historically accurate. It's a very busy place. There's a lot of industry there. There's loggers and fishers and sleeper cutters. Uh, there's men working on what was called the charcoal, which is a great thing for a crime book. Um, and I can easily talk more about that. Then the the forest of the 1970s and the teenage girl Tessa is more a forest in equilibrium and it's a forest where the teenagers are going to escape, you know, parental supervision. Um, and the present-day forest is quite different. It's now locked up. It's a national park, but it's also a flooded forest. You see this forest in the natural way of things before all the dams and the regulators and the irrigation schemes and the towns dependent on the water of the Murray River. The forest would be a forest nine months of the year and the wetlands for three months of the year. So imagine something like the Florida Everglades, um, no alligators and towering gum trees. Well, that's the sort of forest that Nell finds herself in. So the setting is really important in my books, and it is in this one. But because of the three different timelines, I've kind of got three different settings for the price of one. And I'm interested how you get your ideas, particularly for this book. I mean, are you one day going on a lovely walk through a forest and suddenly you see these um, characters rising up in the forest and, and acting out in front of your eyes? Back in uh, 12 or 13 years ago, I wrote a book called The River. It's a non-fiction book and it came out of my work as a journalist. And I travelled through the Murray-Darling Basin, which is Australia's biggest river system. Oh, it's huge. It's about twice the size of Germany. And I travelled through it at the height of what's known here as the Millennium Drought, the worst drought in recorded history, the worst drought since European settlement. And I deliberately went to a couple of places where the drought was having an incredibly dramatic impact. One was a little irrigation town in the western Riverina. That river had no water in it. It was bone dry. So imagine a town totally dependent on irrigation and water that has no water. Well, that provided me with a setting for my first book, Scrublands. Uh, it's fictionalised but I went to a real town like that and spent a week there. I also went to the Barma Millawa Forest because it was dying. 
as I said, in the course of a year, or you know, most years it would flood. When I went there, it probably hadn't flooded for a decade. Now, it's an Australian forest, so it's drought-resistant to an extent. It can go three or four years without a flood. But by this stage, it was a decade. The trees were dying. They were dropping their branches. It was feared it would never come back. Um, now, though, I was reminded of this recently because we've had two or three very wet years in Australia and the forest was flooding. I went, oh, that would be what a good location. So I, um, it took me a, the COVID lockdowns prevented me travelling there for a while, but I did get there in um, November 2021 and when, the river, when the forest was beginning to flood. And that, I think, is when I had the ideas of having the different timelines so I could depict the forest in its different in its different phases. So whereabouts in Australia do you live? Well, I mean, I live in Canberra, which is the capital, but it's inland. Most Australians live on the coast and it is inland and we do get affected by droughts. Right now, most of eastern Australia is, I don't know if you've seen it on the news, but it's been very severely flooded. The Barmamilla forest is completely flooded um, and it's helped save some of the downriver uh, towns from, from being flooded. So Canberra is often called the bush capital because it's set in this, the Australian bushland. It's a bit of a cliche, but if I go walking up behind my house, um, only about 50 metres or 100 metres, I will see kangaroos and I'll see parrots and I'll see the whole <laughs> the whole cliched Australian bush thing is right right near where I live. <laughs> and are the spiders as big as we hear? <laughs> <laughs> no, not where I live. They're, they're further north. I know the ones you mean, the golden ore ones. Yeah. And no crocodiles where I live. <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> thank, yes, thank goodness. I hear about all these spiders and uh, it doesn't endear me. But you're I mean, you're living in such a brilliant country to write about because you've got so many different elements and different types of terrain and I mean you know you presumably you can keep writing uh, books based in Australia for a very long time. I realised with Martin Scarsden the journalist it's easy because he can go anywhere but Nell and Ivan are New South Wales homicide detectives and in Australia um, murder and homicide is a state-based law so it would be very unlikely for them to travel interstate, which sounds limiting, but it's not because New South Wales is huge. It's got everything from the, the tropics or the subtropics to the outback to, you know, the Australian Alps, the snowfields. Um, so there's there's plenty of room for them to move around, yes. Wow, gosh, I'm learning so much more. Uh, let's talk about the clues and the revelations because you manage it so well in the story. Is it something that's hard to do or does it just come as you're writing it? It is hard because I'm not a so-called plotter. I'm what's known as a pantser and that means I write by the seat of my pants. I often start with the seat of an idea and then I start writing, see where it goes. Now, that can be difficult. With me, all my books have three or four different plot lines. That makes it even more difficult. And this time around, I've got the three timelines, and they're interwoven. So when you start reading the book, you have the, the boy, Jimmy, who's uh, been sent into the forest 
uh, with the family cattle to camp with them over summer so they can feed and water in the forest during this drought. Then you've got the teenage girl in the 70s and the present-day story with Nell, and they're interwoven and they start... At the beginning of the book, there's no obvious connection between the three. But as the book goes on, it's almost as if their fates collide. But it was a little bit tricky getting the the stories in sync, if you like. So the reader is being informed by what happens in one timeline about events in another timeline. So there'll be times when, say, the reader is, is learning stuff that Nell herself, the homicide detective, doesn't know of yet. Um, so finessing that took quite a bit of work, um, trying to get it as seamless as possible. So I think I probably wrote about 12 drafts before I delivered it to the publisher. And then there was a whole editing processing, including one pretty significant rewrite there as well. So um, for any aspiring writers, I would not recommend this method. <laughs> It's so interesting because, you know, when I first started doing this, I thought people that were pantsers were the process was much quicker for them. But it just seems the process is just as long as those who plan. It's just the planners have more work at the beginning and the pantsers have more work at the end. Oh, yeah, I do lots of rewrite. Um, With my first book, Scrublands, I reckon I threw away easily a couple of hundred thousand words. That was partly because I was learning on the job. But even now, yeah, I write myself into blind corners. What happens is, and the reason I'm not a plotter, it sounds to me as being a plotter would be far more efficient, is that I try and plot and then I'm writing away and I get a better idea. I think, well, if you get a better idea, why wouldn't you pursue that? Do your books consume you as as you're writing them as much as they consume us as we're reading them? Uh, very much so. You often get asked this question about what you know, what's your work practice about and what's your process. And people typically want to know what your day is like. But actually it's more about a year. I've I've been writing a book a year these past three or four years. And by the end of the year, I might still only be writing mainly in the morning, but yes, the books consume me. So I might be driving or shopping or exercising. Um, or even sleeping. Sometimes I, I've, I've got a problem and I wake up in the morning and, and somehow I've worked out the solution to that problem. So, yes, absolutely, they consume me. But by the end of them, absolutely. So if you could select one moment in your life that sort of made you become an author, what would it be? Ooh, I'm kind of an accidental author. I wrote, I wrote, I'd written two non-fiction books that were very well received, but what I'd learnt from that was there were no there was no money in writing books. So I wrote the book that became Scrublands almost as a hobby, a retirement project maybe. So I was trying my hardest to write the best book I could, but I thought at most it would get published and that would be it. So I think probably just that decision to write because I like the idea of writing a book, not because I was aiming to be a bestseller or to win prizes or anything like that. That decision to simply write something I liked myself, I look back and I think that was a very fortunate decision to have made. 
Yeah. And I think that's where some of us fail that we think, oh, if I write one book, that's going to be it. My future's made. It's like winning the jackpot. So you're you're not writing the book for you. You're writing the book for what you hope will happen to it. And I think that's where some of us fail. Absolutely. And, you know, Philippa, you speak to a lot, lot of authors. So many successful authors will tell you they've got one or two or three books in the bottom drawer that never got published. And then there'll be the same authors or other authors who are two or three or four or five books into their published career and then and then a book will take off and suddenly they're an overnight success after having, you know, three books in the bottom drawer and four four in the bookstore. And really I think that's the it's almost the definition of a real writer as someone who just wants to write books and they do it more or less regardless. And yet that book of yours just took off. I mean, I remember coming across you first uh, because you'd won a, a crime writing prize for it. And so it's just, yes, you wrote it for you, but look what it became. Yeah, I was yeah, I was very lucky. I still pinch myself. Now, let's talk a very important subject when it comes to writing books and for reading books as well. What is your biscuit of choice? What's powering the writing of these fabulous books? The biscuit of choice. Ah, well, I'm Australian, so I'd probably be a Tim Tam, but that would be a lie because I don't really eat that many the biscuits of choice. It's probably a cracker. It's probably something like a mm, a Vita Wheat. Do you have those? I've heard of them. Yeah, so we're going down the healthier route. We're not going for the full sugar variety then. Yeah, no, if, I, if I'm sugar, I, do, I forget the biscuit. I just go straight to the sauce, straight to the chocolate. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. Chocolate and coffee. Coffee is the the absolute essential and chocolate is the the extra. (laughs) And when you're drinking your coffee as you're writing these books, is it it black coffee? How do you take your coffee? Uh, It's espresso, yeah. I can't can't drink instant coffee. Do the characters stay with you of the books that you've finished and those characters are sort of done? Do they stay in, in the back of your mind at all? The major ones do, and something that's happened almost, again, almost by accident, is that a lot of the characters come back. So I won't mention the ones in um, Dead Man's Creek because it would be a spoiler, but there are characters that come back from the previous books, and not just the previous Ivan and Nell books, but the Martin Scarston book. So, so Martin himself, as a journalist, has a bit of a cameo both in Opal Country and Dead Man's Creek. It's because the plot required the homicide detectives to speak to a journalist. And I thought, well, why why make up a, a new journalist when I've got a perfectly good one just sitting there waiting to reappear? So in, in a real sense, the characters do stay with me. Mm. And I've already started working on another book and again there are some recurring characters there it's something I think it's something and it's appealed to me ever since I was a kid and I like the Tindian books but it is also something I appreciate say very much in the books of Michael Connolly you know where he has the Harry Bosch character but then there's the others like Mickey Haller and um, Jack McAvoy and and various other minor characters that pop up um I think that's a fun thing. It's it's definitely fun for me as an author, and I suspect it's fun for the readers as well. I'm interested. You mentioned the next book 
Can you tell us, is there anything more you can tell us about what's next? <laughs> Not a lot. I've had a few false starts with this one, but it will again be um, Ivan and Nell and possibly a little bit more of, of Ivan. I mean, Nell, as I said, is a brilliant character. They're kind of, it's a bit of a two-hander in Opal Country, but in Dead Man's Creek, Nell is a point of view character and Ivan's not. Otherwise, the, you know, the book would get too crowded. So um, Ivan's quite an intriguing character as well. Um, he can be quite taciturn and, and abrupt, but, you know, um, he's he's got a bit of a traumatic past as well. So that's where I think, that's where I think I'm heading. Is there a pressure, though, because you're now so well known for producing, well, writing these brilliant crime books based in Australia, do you sometimes just want to, I don't know, do something about ballet dancing in Paris or, you know, do you just want to sometimes do something completely different? Look, I, I might. At, at this stage, I'm I'm really liking what I'm doing. I think crime has got a lot of, there's a lot of space there for, to explore areas quite apart from plot. When I first started writing Scrublands, I thought the plot was the be-all and end-all of a of a crime book, but it's not. I mean, character is probably more important. Setting can be as important. And you can touch on all sorts of societal issues, um, you know, here in Australia on, on, say, environmental issues. It lends itself to the locations. Um, so I'm very happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. It may, at some point, I'm definitely not ruling out some other genre, but it would just, I'm not going to do it for the sake of it or to prove to myself that I can. It's just if I if I got the right idea, I definitely, definitely would. In the meantime, writing a book a year, and they're quite big books, there's a certain pressure there. But on the other hand, I'm a full-time writer. So I've got that one thing that all writers crave, and that's time to work. My kids are grown up, so I don't really have that sort of... Um, you know, obligation. And the other thing is I'm just addicted to writing. I, I really like it and I can't really explain why. And, you know, if you write every day, lo and behold, after a year or so, you've got a book. Well, we're very glad you're addicted to writing because we're addicted to reading and uh, just really looking forward to seeing more people talking about Dead Man's Creek. Chris Hammer, thank you so very much for joining me. Uh, Philippa, thank you. Coming up on the podcast for more book reviews. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Oh, now I should just mention that Dead Man's Creek has already been released in 2022, just the end of 2022, in Australia, and it was called The Tilt. So if you've already got Chris's book called The Tilt, then you don't need to get Dead Man's Creek. You've already won. You've already got a copy of it. But unless you have bought a book in Australia or you're listening to this in Australia, then you'll be looking for Dead Man's Creek. Anyway, let's get on to the next one. And the next one is The Binding Room by Nadine Matheson. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. I mean, this is the second in the series. The first in the series, one of my top 10 books of 2021. I absolutely loved it. And listen to the blurb on this one. The Serial Crimes Unit are called in to investigate when a local pastor is found stabbed to death. As D.I. Henley assesses the crime scene, she discovers a hidden door that conceals a room set up for torture and bound to the bed in the middle of the room is the body of a man. When another body is found, also tied down, Henley realises there's someone out there torturing innocent people and leaving them for dead. But why? There's nothing that connects the victims. They didn't know each other. Their paths never crossed. But someone has targeted them. And it's up to Henley and the SCU to stop them before they find another binding room. Let's do first sentence. Oh, yes, this is prologue. (laughs) A shrapnel of rib bone pierces the thin, slippery membrane of his right young. Right young? Hmm, there's a new biological term for you. Let's try right lung, shall we, Philippa? Yes, of his right lung. Yellow pus carrying the pungent stench of rotten meat leaks from the broken and infected skin on his back. The jagged, rusted spring from the mattress has embedded itself just below his shoulder blade. This is an absolutely brilliant crime book. Yes, like the first one in the series, The Jigsaw Man, it is sort of gruesome. It's not horror, but it's it's not cosy crime at all. It's full on. But by Jiminy, it's a good one. Um, I thought it was well plotted. There were great layers of detail and characters. Just bravo, Nadine. My goodness. I mean, she can write. These are just superb books. I love the character development. I have to admit, I couldn't remember everything that had happened in The Jigsaw Man. And I felt like I wished I'd gone back and read The Jigsaw Man first before reading this one. So if you're in any doubt, um, maybe read The Jigsaw Man first. But that's that's a minor. That's just me and my little mind. I thought it was superb. Very good. Very good. Very good. 
Now, the next one is more of a cosy crime, I think you could say. And this is Death Comes to Marlowe by Robert Thorogood. Uh, Robert's already been on the podcast. He very kindly came on to talk to us about the first in this series, The Marlowe Murder Club. And Robert is, of course, the creator and writer on the TV series Death in Paradise. So if you like that sort of dynamic, then I think you will love this book. It is quite different. It's not set on a tropical island. But it's just the sort of the mechanisms of the story and the pace. And, uh, yeah, just lots of fun. But it is a crime book. I thought I thought it was really good. Um, I just think you've got it's, it's like an Agatha Christie. You've got, you know, murder that takes place. And how can it have happened? How can it be a murder? Almost like a locked room sort of thing. Um, yeah, just thought it was very good. But let me find the blurb for you on this, because that's what I'm having trouble finding i cannot find the blurb there is no blurb on this one aha i've got the blurb that's the trouble with these proofs trouble that sounds very dismissive of proofs they're wonderful to get but uh yes sometimes the the blurb is hidden here we go are you sitting comfortably judith susie and bex have been enjoying a quiet and murder-free time since the shocking events of last year until now that is Whilst attending the pre-wedding party of one Sir Peter Bailey, Marlowe Grandee, the trio hear a crash from inside Sir Peter's house. When they rush to investigate, they find the groom-to-be crushed to death in his study. The police don't consider the death suspicious, but Judith disagrees. As far as she's concerned, Peter was murdered. And it's up to the Marlowe Murder Club to find the killer before they strike again. Uh, let's have a look at the first sentence oh and can i just say you do not need to have read the first in the in this series at all it doesn't impinge on it i did actually get i've read the book but just to remind myself i managed to get the audio book from the library and listen to it and the audio version is just a delight really really good anyway here we go first chapter chapter one well not the whole chapter first sentences after the excitement of the previous summer, Mrs Judith Potts spent the winter returning to the more solitary rhythms of life. She woke late, watched a bit of telly, played clock patience, went for walks when the mood took her, which wasn't in truth all that often, and made sure she set aside time each day to compile her cryptic crosswords for the newspapers. Um, bravo, brilliant, lots of fun, easy to read. Yes, it's a crime book like The Binding Room, the book I reviewed before, but they are polar opposites in uh, the goriness and the depth and and everything. So I think I enjoyed them both so very much and for very different reasons. But it depends what you're looking for for a, for a crime book. Um, but yeah, excellent. Death Comes to Marlowe, Robert Thorogood, bravo. Right, we've got two more books to go. This one is quite a different story and it's called Afterwards by Charlotte Leonard. Let me read the blurb to you. When Emma gets home after work one evening she calls hello. Oh now I'm going to stop actually. I don't I'm not a fan of always giving trigger warnings because I think every book has something you could give a trigger warning for but I am just going to say now this book is about suicide and if that is a trigger too far for you um, just fast forward a few minutes and we'll be on to the final book. Um, so, yes, sorry, I do just need to say that. Let me start again. 
When Emma gets home after work one evening, she calls hello to her husband, Jay, as she always does. But Jay is not there. He is upstairs and he has ended his own life, seemingly out of nowhere and leaving no note to explain. A photographer, all Jay has left behind is his camera containing five photographs, which are unlike his other work. Desperately trying to comprehend the incomprehensible and struggling to cope in a house that no longer feels like home, Emma follows the images to Cornwall. As the visual mystery of each photograph unfolds, Emma finds herself unravelling and perilously close to breaking point. But could her unlikely salvation lie in the sea, a small community of swimmers and the promise of something Emma thought she didn't want? This is the first chapter and it's entitled Two Years Afterwards. So you start the book knowing a bit about what lies ahead. I'm floating in the tranquil blue. It is summer and the tide is high. Lying back, I lift my toes until they break the surface of the sea. Bright orange painted toenails appear like tiny suns tracking their course in a small arc across a perfect sky. I drop my head and let the ocean take me. So, yes, this book clearly is about very serious subjects. It's about suicide. It's about loss. It's about death and more. Uh, all sorts of really tragic things are covered in this book. But it deals with them in such a light way. It's, I don't know, it's like having a really serious meal or, I don't know, the strongest coffee you could have. And yet it's like the cotton wool version of it. It's uplifting the book. So I'm not saying it's a cotton wool version in a derogatory way it's it is it's an uplifting book I would thoroughly recommend it it's very meaningful um, but you don't find well I didn't find myself getting upset about it because of the way it's delivered it's um it's really quite exquisite it's you know I don't know how the author does it to write about such serious things in a way that you can just sit back and take it in and see the character in the story. And obviously you feel for anybody going through difficulties. So it is, it's not laugh, it's not laugh a minute, ha ha ha. These are serious things happening. But the, the author hasn't presented those events in a way to pull you down and not give you some some hope. So... Yeah, really different book, but very well placed and written. So, yes, Afterwards by Charlotte Leonard. Right, last book. And this is called Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. And I entirely blame the author, Joe Callahan, who came on late last year. Her book is published this month um, in the blink of an eye. Now, Joe's going to shout at me because I'm sure that's what it's got the word blink on and it's got the word eye. But I'm just checking that that's what it's called. Yes. In the blink of an eye. See, 
the memory is there. I can't remember my lines for the pantomime, but I can remember the book. Anyway, Joe Callaghan really recommended it to me. He said, you know, this is an exquisite book to read. There's small things like these by Claire Keegan. And I have to admit, it's 110 pages long with quite a big font. So I thought, yes, this is a good way to get into a book, get through it. Because I'd hit a bit of a time when I wasn't able to do a lot of reading, wasn't feeling it. And so this was this was lovely. It is set really in the run up to Christmas, but it's not a Christmas book. And I would really suggest it. it's a winter's book. So I think now is a great time to read it because you're getting back into things. Maybe you don't feel like reading as much, but you just want to have a book that's I don't know, different and mesmerizing. Anyway, all of those. Yes, it's well, let me do the blurb before we go on. It is 1985 in an Irish town. During the weeks leading up to Christmas, Bill Furlong, a coal and timber merchant, faces his busiest season. As he goes round the houses making deliveries, he feels the past rising up to meet him and encounters the complicit silences of a small community controlled by the church. Mm. Let's do the first sentence. In October, there were yellow trees... Then the clocks went back the hour and the long November, November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. In the town of New Ross, chimneys threw out smoke which fell away and drifted off in a hairy, drawn-out strings before dispersing along the quays and soon the river barrow, dark as stout, swelled up with rain. It's a beautiful book. It's short, as I say, it's nostalgic. There are awful things dealt with in it that make one very cross. But it's... I just wanted more. I didn't want the story to finish. I wanted more. And that's always good for a book, I would say. So, yes, if you're looking for something different, atmospheric, mesmerising, then that's a good choice. Those are your books. Hopefully something there has found your fancy litter 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 oh dear me I think I should just stop here really let me tell you what the books are let me, let's just do a recap so I have reviewed Dead Man's Creek by Chris Hammer and Chris very kindly came on the podcast to talk to us about that book I've reviewed The Binding Room by Nadine Matheson Death Comes to Marlowe by Robert Thorogood Afterwards by Charlotte Leonard and Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan that is your lot going forward some episodes there may just be one author interview some there may be two I'm keen to get some other publishers on as well to talk about their books so that's something that I'm arranging there's lots of books lots of authors lots of interviews lots of chat I've taken enough of your time I'll see you again next week I'll have done the first rehearsal for the pantomime so I'll tell you all about that and just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.